Oh, thank you. Yes, gosh, what an absolutely wonderful audience. Thank you very much indeed for coming in such large numbers. This is my second time in this tent today. I was here this morning for, some of you perhaps were as well, for Gordon Brown in conversation with Ian Rankin. On that occasion, it was billed as Ian Rankin in conversation with a mystery guest. Well, there's, there's no mystery on this occasion. It's a, a star of the literary world. My name is Brian Taylor. I'm the, during the day job, I'm the politics editor of BBC Scotland, but in in August, I like to undergo a, a, a transformation. I sort of masquerade as a lovey for a month and uh, come, to the, come to the book festival. That transformation has taken place during the day as well, as I say, covering, having a look along at a political event this morning and now uh, uh, a great, great literary event this afternoon, which I'm very much looking forward to, and I'm sure you are too. Louis de Bernier, of course, with us today and is talking principally about the, the latest work of Partisan's Daughter, but also I think we'll, we'll talk about some of the new stuff that... Uh, Louis is working on. Uh, very, very keen to get questions from yourselves. The usual format on this occasion is for the, the, the chair to ask a ton of questions and then get a few from the audience. I'd, I'd, I prefer to go right out to the audience and then I might interject a little bit later if there's some, some ideas occur. So get your questions stored up. But meanwhile, would you join me in giving a very warm Edinburgh Book Festival welcome to Louis de Bernier. Louis, please. <laughs> Well, in the spring, I published um, a new novel which, if it had ever come out when originally written, would have been my very first. Um, when I was in my early 20s, um, I was one of these uh, characters who thought he was um, somebody from a Hermann Hesse novel. You know, I was. That's what we were all reading then. It was people, people in search of their authentic identity and their, their true path through life. And uh, myself and my friends, a lot of people like me, thought that all you had to do is have a guitar and a sleeping bag. <laughs> <coughs> and that would get you through life. And by, by doing as little as possible, you would actually transform the world and make it into a better place. <laughs> this was, you know, the, the hippie program. You, some of you are old enough to remember the counterculture and the alternative society aspect. And uh, I carried on believing it for quite a long time until I suddenly noticed that I was the only one left who didn't have any money and no job. <laughs> um, my friends had all slunk away and got jobs for commodities companies and things like that. But um, part, part of my um, authentic way of being back then was uh, living in grotty places. And... Um, a friend of mine called John Horrocks decided to go to Kathmandu on the hippie trail, and he never came back. I, he's probably still there behind the police station smoking ganja, because it actually grows in the police station. <laughs> um, so I took over his room, which was five pounds a week, in a, a hard-to-let hard house that belonged to Islington Cooperative Housing. And it wasn't hard to let at all, of course, because it was only a fiver a week. But there was no roof. <laughs> there, was, there, were no, there were no floorboards, really. The wiring was hanging off the walls. It was in the most dreadful state. And uh, I was working as a car mechanic at the time, uh, earning 80 quid a week for a, a dodgy Morris Minor garage in Stoke Newington. And um, so I was actually quite wealthy for a while. Now, in this house were some other personalities... Um, also part of the counterculture. For example, there was a, a sculptress who made lovely ceramic things which she, she used to put in the, t in the water of the Thames at low tide and take photographs of. And she, she was um, a very 
sort of a rather nice but typical late 1970s feminist. She, you know, she had the dungarees and the heavy boots and the stripy t-shirt with no bra and, and the, the badge that said, um, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. <laughs> and uh, I expect some of you had one of those. There's one wearing one up there, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but oh, also, there was, there was a woman from Serbia who, who, who said she was an illegal immigrant from Serbia. And she'd found work in a hostess club. Now, f for those of you who are sweet and innocent, a hostess club is where girls dress up as squirrels or bunny rabbits or pussycats. And they inveigle rich, lonely, and stupid men into buying bottles of champagne for hundreds of pounds at a time. And the girls get a percentage of the champagne, um, um, you know, profits. And of course, the girls aren't allowed to get drunk themselves, so they're pouring the champagne into the plastic flower pots and things. Um, but obviously, uh, some of these girls were also involved in prostitution. And the woman who I called Rosa said that she had she, uh, she, said, she said she'd had a trunk full of money under her bed. She had so much money in her trunk that she'd never have to work again. Um, I never did check that out. And it wasn't until years and years and years later that, that I started to doubt whether or not the stories that she told me were true, by which time it didn't really matter. After, after I left the house to do teacher training, I wrote down all of Rosa's stories instead of doing my essays. And I thought, hooray, I've got my first novel. But actually, it wasn't a novel because it was just one thing after another, and a novel needs a plot. So, more than 20 years and seven drafts later, um, I found a way of making it into a novel by bringing in a fictional character. Um, my editor, at one point, was annoyed with me persisting with this story. He said, you're obsessed with this woman. And I thought, well, I'm not, but why don't I have a character who is? So, my editor accidentally gave me the way of turning it into a novel. Um, the character is called Chris. He, he's a disillusioned um, medical salesman. He's in a completely dead marriage. He refers to his wife as the great white loaf. <laughs> um, which, which has had some amusing consequences, actually. Um, I had an email from a friend of mine in the West Country he said, I loved your book, it was beautiful. And I thought, yeah, well, I didn't think anyone would like it. It's not my usual sort of thing. And he said, yes, but I was married to the Great White Loaf for 20 years. <laughs> and a woman, after reading in Ely, came up to me and she said, your book made me feel very uncomfortable. I said, why? And she said, I think I am the Great White Loaf. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Chris, Chris um, is driving through Archway in North London, having seen um, a doctor f about selling something, and he, th he thinks he spots a prostitute on a street corner. I'm going to miss out the first two pages because they're, they're embarrassingly sordid, but you know, there's always a risk that my mother's in the audience. Or something, so, um, <laughs> But I thought I'd tell you that just to, to, as an incentive to buy it. <laughs> anyway. The woman was standing on a street corner in Archway, looking as though she was pretending to wait for someone. 
She was wearing a short skirt and high boots, and her face was made up too much. I remember lilac lipstick, but I may have invented that image subsequently. It was winter, not that you'd ever know what season it was in Archway, because in Archway, it's always late November, on a good day. Early February on a bad one. In fact, it was during the winter of discontent. The streets were heaped high with rubbish. You couldn't buy bread or the Sunday Times. And in Liverpool, no one would bury the dead. You couldn't get heating oil. And even if you had cancer, you were lucky to get into hospital. The comrades were trying to start the revolution. And our particularly hopeless Prime Minister's ship was holed beneath the water. I've always liked being British. But that was the worst time I can remember, and the one time when it was impossible not to be depressed about living in Britain. Back then, we all needed some prospect of consolation, even if you weren't married to a great white loaf. The girl wore a fluffy white fur jacket. She had litter whirling about her in the cold wind, and she was like a light glowing in the fog. She seemed a well-built girl, and I felt a lurch of attraction that I couldn't help. There was a slightly sick feeling in my stomach. It was the first time I'd ever knowingly spotted a prostitute, and I realized I should just drive on. What if you get taken inside and someone mugs you for your wallet? You'd probably be too ashamed to go to the police. Even so, after I got to the end of the road, it was as if my willpower had been mysteriously cancelled out. Something took control of my hands. I did a three-pointer at the end of the street and came back down. I found myself stopping beside her and winding down the window. It was all against my better judgment, and I could feel palpitations in my chest and sweat forming on my temples. It occurred to me that I would probably be too anxious to manage anything anyhow. I looked at her, and she looked at me, and I tried to say something, but nothing came out. She said, yes? I wasn't sure of the formula, so I said, have you got the time? <laughs> because that was suitably ambiguous. She looked at her watch, shook her wrist, and put it to her ear. She said, sorry, it stopped. I get bad luck with watches. She had a nice voice. It was soft and melodious with an accent I couldn't place. I tried again and said, are you working? She looked at me with a puzzled expression, and then enlightenment dawned. A whole gallery of expressions crossed her face one after the other from indignation to delight. Finally, she laughed and put her hand to her mouth in a way that was really very sweet and charming. Oh, she said. Oh, you think I'm bad girl. I was appalled. I started gabbling. I'm so sorry. It's a mistake. Oh, please, please forgive me. It was a, a horrible mistake. She continued laughing. And I just sat there in my car with my ears burning. At that point, I should have driven away, but for some reason, I didn't. She stopped giggling. And then, to my surprise, she opened the passenger door and got in bringing with her a tidal wave of heavy perfume that I found very unpleasant and stifling. The woman sat next to me and looked at me with a pert expression. She had dark brown eyes 
and had her shiny black hair done in the kind of style that I believe is called a bob. It suited her very well. As I said, she was a well-built girl with wide hips and large breasts. She wasn't the sort I would normally have taken a fancy to. I called cab, she said, but it didn't come, and I waited long, long time, so you can take me home. But I regret I don't sleep with you just now. Oh, I said. It's not far, she said, just few streets, but I don't like to walk. This place is full of bad ones, bloody all sorts. I was shocked. I said, you shouldn't be getting into cars with strange men. Something might happen. She shot me a contemptuous look and said, you wanted me in your car before, when you thought I was bad girl, before you didn't tell me not to go getting in car. I said, yes, but, and she interrupted me with a wave of her hand. But nothing, no bullshits now. I live down that way, you give me lift, and that's how you say sorry. And you protect me from other strange men, okay? I delivered her to a place that doesn't exist anymore. It wasn't far from that bridge at the top of the hill where alcoholics from the drying out clinic used to commit suicide by throwing themselves down to the road below. It was a whole street of semi-derelict terraces that must have been grand once. But back then it was full of abandoned cars and litter. Not many houses had intact window frames and nothing can have been painted for years. There were wide cracks in many of the walls and you could see that there were tiles missing or broken on almost every roof. All the same, it seemed quite a friendly and unthreatening sort of place and that was indeed what it turned out to be. It was a street full of poor people and transients who wanted to live in peace and for whom decorating would have been expensive and pointless. It all got demolished and redeveloped during the Thatcher era. I was sad about that, but it needed doing, I suppose. I passed by when they were wrecking it, and I asked the demolition men for the street sign. I've still got it somewhere in the garage. When I stopped the car, she held out her right hand very formally and said, Rosa, nice to meet you. Thank you for the lift. I hope you find someone nice to sleep with. <laughs> I took her hand and shook it. I thought I ought to give her a false name, but couldn't think of one. I was embarrassed by my name anyway. I'm not from a well-to-do family, and I always thought it sounded pretentious. I'm Christian, I said, having been reduced by confusion into telling the truth. Christian, she repeated. I suppose it must have been a name that she thought didn't suit me. My parents thought it sounded posh. Everyone calls me Chris. Just before she left, she leaned down to the window and smiled at me seriously. So, Chris, how much were you going to give me? <laughs> give you? For the sex, you know? Oh, I said, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. So, Chris, you never been with bad girl before? No, I haven't. She looked at me with skeptical indulgence and I felt my ears begin to burn again. Rosa said, They all say that. Every one. Not one man has ever been with bad girl before. Never, never, never. 
I was thinking over the startling implications of this when she added, when I was bad girl, I never took less than 500. I didn't do cheap. With that, she turned and climbed the tilting steps to her door. She waved at me gently with a strangely old-fashioned circular movement of her hand. And before she went in, she said, You come by sometime. I give you coffee, maybe. I don't know. I just sat there for a while with the motor turning, and the archway rain began to fall more heavily. I'd worked out by then that Rosa must indeed have been a prostitute, but wasn't one anymore. I wondered if I had offended her at all, or if I had merely amused her. It felt as though she had been teasing me. I don't know how to classify my falling in love with Rosa. I've been in love often enough to be completely exhausted by it, and not to know what it means anymore. When you look back afterwards, you can always find another way of putting it. You say, I was obsessed. It was really lust. I was fooling myself. Because after you've recovered from being in love, you always decide that that wasn't what it was. Every time you fall in love, it's a bit different. And in any case, love is a word that gets used too lightly. It ought to be a sacred word that's hardly ever used. But it was then, when I was sitting there in my car with the engine running and the wipers slapping, that I began, at the very least, to fall into fascination. You can call it love, if that's what suits. I think that's what I would call it. Thanks. Thank you. That was absolutely brilliant. It has given, I'm sure, a real taster of the, 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 the novel. I'm, I think I speak on behalf of the whole audience. We're all delighted you abandoned the creative inertia of those early days and uh, decided to, to, to write such uh, splendid uh, novels as, as you've done. The, the <laughs> book carries on to, to tell the story from the two perspectives of Chris and Rosa and mingles the, the events of the, the time extremely brilliantly, but throughout there's always this sense, the sense that Chris has of Rosa and the sense that the author has of the entire story, of mistrust of what we are being told. So one of the issues underlying there is, is what can we trust, what can we believe? Uh, and that's a, it's, it's really an extremely fine work in, in that regard and in many others. Now, as I promised Oblique Threatened, I'm going to go straight out to the audience to see who wants to ask some questions and start a discussion going. Um, we can I see them both? Oh, oh but, but it all happens It all happens as if by magic. Now, who's, who's first with, with, with your hand? I warn you, I haven't got my specs on, so I, I won't be able to, I, I can see a sort of sea of faces, but uh, as yet not a forest of hands. Yeah, there's one there, please. Any, any others, who's gonna be, gonna be next? Okay, let's somebody see, up there. your question, please. Yeah. Yes, please. Hey, um, I was just gonna say that uh, we used your, um, your passage in um, Captain Crowley's Mandolin about love, about the inseparating of the oak tree, the whatever the yes. trees, and and you again were talking very sort of beautifully about the sort of kind of nature of love, and I just wondered whether it's something that you need to experience very deeply yourself to write so beautifully about. Just before I put that to, to, to Louis, what, what do you mean you, you used it? Used it in what way? We used it just as um, a sign of commitment in our. Um, Wedding ceremony. Oh. Yes. Uh, the, the, For goodness the, sake. This is, the, this is odd, actually. The, 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 there's, there's a little passage in the Captain Crowley's Mandolin where 
the doctor, Dr. Yanis is talking to Pelagia about uh, the nature of love and saying that, it, that love is different from being in love and that, that lo lo love is, is like two, two, two trees that have stood together so, so long that, that they become entwined and you can no longer tell which is which. And uh, I must say, I thought I'd nick this idea from some 1970s book by Khalil Gibran. But I, when I went back to look for it, I couldn't find it, so I think I must have made it up. You, 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 you had been um, on the Afghan ganja at that point. Or anything. <laughs> it's, um, it's, uh, uh, it got into an, an anthology of nice things to read at weddings, so it's now become quite popular um, at weddings. But um, to answer your question, it's, it, it's given people the impression that I must be some sort of amazing expert on love myself, and I really I'm, I'm as misguided uh, as everybody else. And I, I, have the, I, I have the same disasters and make the same stupid mistakes as everybody else does. So tell, tell um, us, how was it used at the wedding? Was it done as a reading or, 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 or what? It, okay, very good. Reading by a friend or? or? Okay, great yeah. stuff. Well, yeah. well done. Thank you. Yeah. There was a hand raised further back. Yep. Please, if you can scoot up there. Any, any other hands so that the mics can come near to you? They're next there. Yeah, please. Thank sir. you. Um, I'm delighted to see you're wearing another one of your Bavarian shirts that you had on in Belvon and Crowell the other day when you were playing <laughs> the bazooki. Um, my question was, uh, given how much uh, the area of the world that you so often write about has changed uh, since Captain Crowley's mandolin, um, what stories do you feel are, are left to tell about that part of the world, and if, if there are any, what are they? Okay. What stories are there left to tell? Um, I, th I think there are still many stories to come out of the collapse of Yugoslavia. I think no one has yet written the definitive novel about what happened in Cyprus, or, or what happened in Cyprus and what happened subsequently. Um, I think, although this is slightly out of the region, I, th I think we're still waiting for the great novel about, about Palestine. Um, I'm not sure these are things that, that I would be able to tackle myself, but um, you know, I, I hope that someday somebody does. I, I think, and then there must, there must also be novels from places like Bulgaria and Albania looking back on the previous regime and what happened when those regimes changed. The situation so in Yugoslavia is remarkable. It's a, it's a disintegration, and yet we had very recently Slovenia presiding over the European Union, which yes. of course is a great, great, great advantage to them. And they, but but uh, people there, people from, from Slovenia say that while they are looking to the West in terms of political connections, they maintain their connections with their neighbours and friends in, in Croatia and, and more, with, with a greater challenge in Serbia. Yes, and the, the, the Serbs, um, Rosa is a Serb, and if you, if you, if you, if you, if you read this story, she, she, you find she has a very ambivalent yes. attitude towards the other, the other countries of which, Yugoslav, of which Serbia is a part. She has a bit so of a greater Serbia yes. attitude, doesn't she? Yes, yeah, she does, but um, um, I forgot what I was going to say now. I was going to say that... that, that, that um, Serbia, in particular, has had the strongest links in the past with Greece and Russia yeah. because of the Orthodox faith. Yes. And that's one of the things that makes it so hard for them to become um, more integrated into Europe because yeah. I think Russia is actually has, has an enormous pull on them yes. in a way that it's hard for us to understand. Yes, okay. Who's, who's, there was a hand raised here, please, if we can get the microphone there. Yep, and then, then I saw one just behind as well. 
There's probably hundreds of hands being raised up there, but I can't see you, so there we are. <laughs> no, please. Good afternoon. Um, Hello. I'm a very slow reader, so it takes me forever to read a book, and unfortunately I didn't manage to finish Captain Corelli some ah. years ago whilst on holiday in Catalonia and had to finish it in crew. Um, but I found it very powerful as a book. It, it is my favourite book, without wishing to sound too sycophantic. And I found afterwards that I really missed the characters. And I thought, given it must have taken you even longer to write, did you have to go through some sort of process of mourning almost? Or do they live on in your head? Do they have oh, nice lives question. that continue? Um, it's true of all your books, or all of my books anyway, that I have become very fond of particular characters. And, and when, when, when I finish the book, I have a sense of bereavement. But they're, in a way, they're like, they're like friendships you made at school. You may not see them for 20 years, but the friendship is always there. They're still always there somehow. So, and sometimes they, um, they try to come back. Like, every time I want to write about an older man, it, it's Dr. Yanis pretending to be somebody else. <laughs> you know? So, um, but in Birds Without Wings, I got particularly fond of the character of Ruston Bay, you know, who's, the, who's the local, I suppose, the local nobility. And I, I, I missed him quite badly, and I felt sorry for him for years afterwards. So. You, I think you have a particular fellow feeling for as a wonderful character in, in Partisan's Daughter called the Bob Dylan upstairs, always known in capital letters as the Bob Dylan upstairs. You have a certain fellow feeling for that character, I believe. Yes, um, there's a character in A Partisan's Daughter called the BDU, it's the Bob Dylan upstairs, and he, he's upstairs obsessively listening to Bob Dylan records and trying to play Bob Dylan songs on the guitar. And this, this, is, um, uh, this is an affectionate caricature of me at the time. You know, I thought I was going to be a rock star and probably the next British, you know, I was going to be the British Bob Dylan. Um, How does that go? And <laughs> well, I played in several bands in my 20s um, and then I realised in the end that I didn't actually want it to be a rock star, I wanted to be a proper musician. Aha. So I, I started becoming more and more interested in classical music and traditional music from all over the world. But you, do, that, that, you do a huge amount of musical that's, work, Yes, you? I do. That's yeah. what I do now. Uh, it's my other profession. Well, it's not quite as well paid, I have to say. Um, can I just read you a little bit? There's, um, there's a little cameo of something that happened to me when I was the Bob Dylan upstairs. Chris has arrived at the door and been let in by the Bob Dylan upstairs. And he says, I just heard on my car radio that President Bhutto had been hanged in Pakistan, but I was right to assume that it was something else that was bothering the Bob Dylan upstairs. Rosa told me that the Bob Dylan upstairs had invited a beautiful and original and athletic girl to dinner and had made her something special in his walk. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was 1979. I, I thought it would have been hard to have a romantic dinner in a house where the wiring was hanging off the walls, there were stair treads missing, the carpets were congealed with grease, and there wasn't a proper roof. But those kinds of young people had different standards, I suppose. It turned out that after dinner, the girl had said, I hope you're not expecting any gymnastics, because Moira is my lover. The Bob Dylan had assumed that this Moira was just a flatmate. He had been very besotted with his dinner guest and had definitely been hoping for some gymnastics. <laughs> I know the feeling, I thought. I love so. I love didn't, didn't you love the empathetic laughter about the wok? You've, you've all been there, haven't you? You've all, yes. you've all been there. You've all tried cooking with a wok. 
completely impossible. No, right. I, still <laughs> I still use mine. Do you? Well oh, done, yeah. well done. Congratulations. Yeah. A question there, please. Thanks. Hi, Louis. I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but I've not heard your answer, so oh. I'm going to ask it even if it's again. Uh-oh. Here we go. <laughs> um, I read one or two of your early books All right. um, and found very amusing. And then I read Captain Corelli and then subsequently Birds Without Wings. And I was so struck by this, what seemed to me, this huge change of voice you'd gone through in... It, it, in the kind of transition from one genre to another mm. and found both of those those latter books really very affecting, very powerful and kind of expressive of, of a passion that you seem to have for the forgotten stories of ordinary humanity. Mm. And I'm wondering how you yourself would describe or understand the change that you went through in making that shift from one kind of writing to another. Oh, this is, this is a question I like. I, I, I thought I was, I was afraid you were going to ask me about the film. Um, um, that comes later, Louis. No, this, is, this, is, this is a nice question. Nice audience. Well, the thing is, when I was 18, I spent a year in Colombia in South America, and it, it had, it had um, an enormous sort of radical effect on me, so that when I came back to Britain, I never really felt British again for a very long time. I found... Well, I went to University of Manchester, and back then that was a really grim place. I mean, it, it, was, it was thick with soot, and everything was broken, there was huge unemployment. Whereas in Colombia, it, it, it had been just bursting with vitality. Right? So, so when I came back, I became more and more obsessed with Latin America, as if I was living there in my imagination. So while all my friends were reading, you know, I, I think back then it would, it would have been Martin Amis, you know, who's the groovy young guy at the time, um, I was reading Latin American writers, and I carried on being obsessed with Latin America until I was in my early 30s. And I, I think that, that we, or perhaps writers in particular, are very like computers. It's you tend to get out what you put in. So because I put in so much Latin American literature, when I, when I finally got going properly, I, I was writing Latin American literature, which includes magic realism and political realism, and this rather... Um, perhaps over-involved Baroque style. And, but after, I was going to do five of those novels. Now, the, the, the fourth one was going to be about a dictatorship. It was going to be a satire on a dictatorship. But just when I was about to do it, all of the Latin American republics, except for Cuba, democratized. And I realized I would have been satirizing something that... It would have been an anachronism, in other words. So I thought, right, I'm stopping there. I'm not doing five. And anyway, I had enough by then, because magic realism makes plotting too easy. I wanted more of a challenge. And um, I think if you, if, you, if you look at Birds Without Wings and Captain Corelli's Mandolin, you'll find they're not actually that different. What's been dropped is the magic realism. So now, um, nothing happens that is too improbable. Whereas in the, in the earlier books, you celebrated the improbable. I celebrated the improbable or the impossible. Um, that's really what changed. I think I kept a very similar style, which has continued to evolve. And I think I kept the political realism. In fact, I think the political realism is there even more. You, you always know in my novels what the political situation is. So that, that, that's how it changes. Um, and, and this particular book... Um, I took the author's voice out altogether, so it's narrated entirely by Chris and Rosa. So that's why it's somewhat shorter than my books normally are. Because 
But you certainly have the, you certainly have the political realism there because it is, yeah. as I said earlier, set very much against the, the background we heard in, in the reading that you had, the, yeah. the background of the winter of, of discontent. And so you have this, in that case, grim realism underlying yeah. as, as an underlying note. And then what we're never quite sure is, is fiction, fact or fantasy coming from the Rosa story as well. And I think it, 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 it plays superb. Yes, I mean, it, I often read the second chapter immediately after that first one, and it, you find out straight away that Rosa's already told two lies. So, uh, she wasn't waiting for a cab. <laughs> I see a hand raised just there, please. Yep, if you can pass them. H hang on a second, the microphone will come your way so that the, the rest of us can all hear as well. Um, uh, Louis, I'm interested to know about the real Rosa. Um, have you kept in touch with her? And does she know she's been written about and what became of her? Well, I hope she never finds out. <laughs> because she, she was a very scary woman. Um, she would have been quite prepared to cut my throat, I think. Um, she, she, she was a big girl. She, she had a gap between her teeth, which was rather charming. And I really regret I didn't get that into the novel. But... Um, I, well, after I left the house, I called back in a couple of months later and I found that she had disappeared. Nobody knew where she'd gone and there was a stack of letters on the floor for her, you know, not all with the same name on. And what she said to me, her real ambition was to go home to Yugoslavia and become a poet. She did write rather, as far as I could tell, rather beautiful poetry. She used to read it to me. And so I hope that that's what, she do what she's done. I hope she's gone home to Serbia and become a poet. But she was such a heavy chain smoker, I think she's almost certainly dead by now. Well, well you, you said earlier in, in, in the reading that as if it was, uh, and when you were discussing it with your editor, as if it was an obsession. Was it something like that? Something you had to almost, almost exorcise? Or, or, or was it just a story that was there you felt you should well, complete? Well, th th there's something about being a writer, which means you're an opportunist. That's the game. So, uh, I mean, for example, a couple of years ago, I went to do a reading in Buxton, and I happened to be next to somebody at dinner who was a vicar, and he told me this astonishing ghost story. Uh -huh. So I just said, can I have it? <laughs> and he, he said, yes. So I went home and wrote this ghost story. It was a wonderful freebie. And I mean, that, that's, that's, that's what I felt about having been in the house with Rosa, that she told me all these wonderful stories, and it would be an awful shame to waste them. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, <laughs> the journalistic approach is that if you pinch it from one source, it's, uh, it's plagiarism. If you get it from two, it's research. Yes. Um, <laughs> 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 who's next? Who's next with a question? Way up the back. Yep. Hi. Um, I was just wondering if any of your experiences in Latin America uh, inspired some of the some of the events in uh, Senor Vivo. Oh, th th this this is a novel about a young philosophy professor who who starts to write letters of protest to newspapers about the behaviour of the cocaine thugs, and it brings himself and his friends and acquaintances into extreme danger as a consequence. Um, when I was in Latin America, and where I was, there were two problems. What, uh, the worst one was FARC, guerrillas, kidnapping people and taking them on six-month holidays in the jungle. In the case of Ingrid Batanko, it was years. Um, the, the, otherwise, where I was, it was mainly marijuana smuggling, um, usually over across the hills to Venezuela. So it, it, it wasn't such... It, that wasn't something I was personally acquainted with out there, really. But I did, I did become acquainted with the sort of extraordinary cult of... Mach what's the word? Macho violence. That, that, that so many people have there. I mean, I, I became acquainted with that. And when, when I 
decided to write that novel, that fortunately, exactly the same time, the British media became obsessed with the subject. So I was able to do much of my research just by reading the newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, I did. And the book was written in a, in, with, with a, a feeling of moral outrage about what the thugs were doing to ordinary innocent people in Colombia. And of course, they're, they're still doing it now. Did you find um, the people very resilient uh, or, or, or downtrodden or, or what? What was the, the well, response of the, re the region where I was, it was not too bad, you know, but it, but it was appalling in places like Medellin. Yeah. Um, where the, 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 the thugs are so warped morally that they, they, they will pray and burn candles to the Virgin Mary before they go out to cut someone's throat. Yeah. No, it, it, is quite, it is morally almost And not see the contradiction. And not just see, not yeah. see how weird that is. Uh -huh. um, Anyway, I, I was very outraged, and so I, I, the, 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 the one thing that I would add is that during, during the 1950s and earlier, there was a long period in Colombia called La Violencia, where, which was a civil war between the liberals and the conservatives. I mean, the, the communists thought the historical conditions weren't right, so they didn't join in. But, um, so, uh, and during that time, the most extraordinary levels of extreme, uh, meticulous and subtle violence w w were invented. Ways of, ways of killing people so that they would seep to death, seep, you know, seep blood, seep to death over a period of two or three days. Or, or another technique where they just cut tiny bits off you relentlessly. Oh, you know, these sorts of things. And I wanted, I wanted, well, to express my outrage about this, and I wanted the rest of the world to know that it was happening because the cocaine thugs took those techniques over from the people who had invented them during that civil war. Anyway. I mean, otherwise, the landscape and many of the people and so on are, are, are things that are adapted from what I do remember. Thank you very much. Somebody over there. Question the far side there, please. Sorry, it's always a, it's always a little race. That's it. Thank you. Yes, please. I'm interested in your time in Greece and Turkey. How long did you actually live among the people? And I wondered, with the story of uh, Captain Corelli, if you had read... Prior to that, um, Nicholas Gage's book about Eleni with the, um, the Civil War in Greece and how much that had affected the book. Um, that's, well, I haven't ever lived in Greece and Turkey. I've just been there an awful lot, um, which, which might in a way be better because I think if you live somewhere, you often stop seeing it clearly. One of my problems with setting stories in Britain is, is that, is that, is that it, is, it wasn't until quite recently that, that Britain began to strike me as exotic or interesting. Um, so I just, I just went there a lot. Um, and th the question about Eleni is interesting because this is a book by Nicholas Gage about um, really the fate of his mother, Eleni, at the hands of the communist partisans. And um, it's often held up by people on the centre or the right in Greece as an example of the extreme brutality of the left. And the left have always dismissed it as right-wing propaganda. But oddly enough, I still haven't read this book. And I, I really must get round to it one day. Um, Could you? and I have actually been up to, yeah, where it took place. And we met Nicholas Gage when we were there. Uh -huh. Did you? Um, the, the house where Eleni lived, he has actually reconstructed to be the, exactly the way it was when yeah. Eleni was alive. So we had first-hand uh, stories about exactly how it was there. It's a fantastic place to go to. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, who's, who's next? Is that a hand raised just next door? Yes, please. 
I'd, I'd be interested to know if, as, as you get older, does it get easier or harder to write fiction? Ah. How old are you? <laughs> 37. Have well, you tried it? writing fiction? Well, it's easy for ah, you. Ah, there's a nod, a nod. Well, in, it's, it's, in a way, it's easier when you're younger because you, you're, you've, had a, you've had all those years, all those decades of stories and ideas bubbling up inside you. And when you start writing, they all just pour out. You know, and then, and then uh, you, you find that you've, you, suddenly you've got less material, you use it all. You can't keep using the same ideas or coming up with the same sentences. And so you need, you need periods of replenishment where you, where you sort of refill. Well, you just know. go out and experience things, go out and, go out and, go out and live for a bit. Or, or, well, or, or. yes, I mean, do something you wouldn't normally do, maybe. Like, like read all of Mrs. Gaskell, go, go to the south of France. Um, you know, I think I like the second one better than the first. But, but. <laughs> oh. I like Mrs. Gaskell, that's something I did. Did you? Um, Very courageous. But, but also, the, the, problem is, is the problem isn't actually one of um, so much that. I, th I, th I think in my own case, I, it was much easier to write when I was starting off because nobody was hassling me. I, I, I had nobody making demands on my time or sending me hundreds of emails or stacks of letters. I was just coming home from my rather humble teaching job really with nothing to do except write. And now, now I, I sort of feel that I've, I've almost turned into a business. And I have, <laughs> I have you know, I, I, I have a very hassleful cat who always wants my attention and walks up and down the keyboard. I've got, I've got a three and a half year old. And I, I have honestly, I've recently been writing a film script with Robin sitting on my knee, working with one hand. And I've, I've done this ever since he was born, uh. writing with one hand. So it, it's, um, it, life has a way of getting in the way, in a way that it didn't um, when I was just starting out. Were you, were you ask the question, were, were you seeking encouragement there or advice or what are you, are you trying to write yourself or? or? I, just, I, just thought, I just thought it's an interesting process and I wonder how, particularly when you've had one book that's been such a huge success, if that ever feels like an albatross and if your, your work that's behind you begins to haunt you and get in your way as you're trying to write new okay, things. Okay, right. Um, well, success is relative. Um, it's true that Captain Crowley sold, I don't know, t t two or three million or something. But Birds Without Wings, the big novel afterwards, which is actually a far better book, I think it's got to about half a million. And you can't call that a failure. <laughs> so and you mentioned the film script, Louis. You're working on that. Yes, but I, I, I just couldn't finish off that. Yeah, yeah, please, so of course. Yeah. Captain Corelli is an albatross around my neck, but it's an albatross that's been well worth having because it's made everything possible, you know, that in, in, that's happened afterwards. And I, I, I owe it an enormous amount. It would just be um, perverse to, yeah. to, to, to try and repudiate that book. I'm still proud of it. I just think I've written a better one. Yeah, sorry. And the film script you, you, that you're working on? Yes, I've... Um, some, um, some people bought the option for uh, Birds Without Wings not long ago, and they were hoping that Anthony Mingello would do the script and direct it. But of course, he, he died um, an untimely death, and so they've asked me to do it. And, uh, I don't have much experience of script writing, and everybody advises me not to, not to go anywhere near it. Why, is that? Like, why, why do they say that to you? Well, Sebastian Folks has had dreadful experiences with script writing. He, he says that everyone... well. He, they are, working title asked him to write it, so he did write it, and they, they, then they, they sort of fired him. They, they, <laughs> they, they, they hired, I think, Harold Pinter, and then it turned out he was too expensive, so they hired him. 
it's, it just goes on and on. And now Sebastian's trying to write it again, but not with any sense of, of um, optimism. He, he says that everyone in the film industry is either dim or bonkers or both. <laughs> and it's true. It's true that, that when a film is made, it's always done by a committee of people. It's a group of people cooperating, and that, that authors are just not like that. You know, uh -huh. I, I, when I write something, I want everyone to agree immediately that it's perfect. That it's wonderful, yes. And one, <laughs> pr practically perfect in every way, as Mary Poppins <laughs> yes. would say. Yeah, but, but the, the, and, and what, are you meant to submit little drafts as you're going along so that they can tear it to bits? Or, or well, I, I, have, I haven't done that, in, in, because if I do that, they might say, stop now, and then not pay me. <laughs> But um, I've, I've written what I consider, if you think of a film as being in three acts, which in, in a way a film is, I've written the first act already, you know, with Robin on my knee. And um, I, I'm pretty pleased with it so far. Robin's the child, not the cat, yeah? What? Yeah, the cat's called Porthos. Oh. <laughs> Aramis and D'Artagnan will be along any second now, will they? <laughs> well, yeah. I could talk about cats all day, but not start with <laughs> Yes, please. There's probably a fair few cat fanciers in the audience as well, mm -hmm. but that's, a, that's another matter. Perhaps I shouldn't ask this question, but um, you're doing a film strip then about Birds Without Wings. Mm. Are you going to change the story? I am going to change the story, but only in fairly small ways. Um, f for example, there are, two, there are two little boys in that book who are friends. And it doesn't really matter which one did what when they were children, so I've already changed... I don't, have you read the book? Yes, of course. Well, th there's, there's, there's someone near the beginning when um, one of the little boys thinks he can fl he's determined that he can fly and he stands on top of a, one of these tombs and tries to fly. And, of course, he's, he's caught by, by um, a woman underneath. And I, I changed which one, which of the boys it was, just, just to, for, for the sake of economy. Um, that, that's all. And uh, um, a tremendous amount of the story is going to have been had, it's going to have to be missed out because it's an enormous book, mm. and um, so there's going to be nothing in there about Ataturk, for example. Um, some of the stories will be altogether missing, like the story of the honor killing, which is in there. So yes, I'm I'm more missing things out than changing things. Have you mm. had any Have you had any helpful advice about about? film script writing other than don't touch it, which is the, the advice you seem to have had, I mean, practical advice about how to approach it. Not really. I'm, I'm rather afraid that if I do take advice, right. it could go wrong. There's one other <laughs> question there. Please, yes. Um, yeah. Will we know what happens to them when they eventually get to, was it, I can't remember, was it Yugoslav they were going to? I don't, yes, the, the, the end of the book leaves things somewhat hanging in the air because you don't know what happens to the Greek refugees uh, who had to leave. And that, that's a question I'm not even going to think about until I get to it. <laughs> Very J.K. Rowling approach, well done. Yeah. Any, any other questions? Who's next? Yes, please. Here. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you that um, uh, Birds Without Wings is a better book than Captain Corelli. I've enjoyed them both, but I think Bird Without, Birds Without Wings is a brilliant book. And I'm astonished that you want to make it into a film, or want to have it made into a film. Why, w why would you want that? Um, <laughs> I think... Well, pe people used to ask me about, um, 
you know, my negative attitude towards the film of Captain Crowley's Mandolin, which is, it actually isn't as negative as people seem to think, but I always used to say it, it's a bit like losing your virginity, that it may not be a success, but it doesn't stop you trying again. <laughs> and I felt, I felt that um, what, what got me this time was that, was that the man, the man who, who's actually at the heart of the project is, is a Turkish producer called Yusuf Karabol. And I thought, to have a real Turk making a film set in Turkey, probably, probably, with, um, probably in English, but with all, most of the cast being Turkish, I thought it, it, it just might be a chance to get a magnificent epic out of this book, rather than um, an, an attempt at mass market success, such as you'd inevitably get from an, from an American studio. I mean, I, I don't think I would have been so interested if it hadn't been... Um, you know, if there hadn't been a Turkish producer at the heart of it. It's also, it's also one of the most fascinating global political stories, it strikes me, as Turkey, and yet one of the most neglected, because Turkey's application for membership of the European Union is being both supported and opposed by other member states in Europe for, frankly, their own reasons. Britain, because it's pursuing what it believes is an expansionist agenda, but is also a, a US agenda, France and Germany, because they're concerned about immigration. So it strikes me as an incredibly important place in, in global politics, and yet one that is almost entirely ignored. Yes, I mean, our, our media don't seem to be very interested in Turkey, no. um, but th th they're having a, a very frightening constitutional crisis at the moment, which you may know about. But um, it's, it's, um, it's a country that I've become very fond of, and I, I, I'm generally speaking, I, I, I respect Turks very, very greatly. Yeah, absolutely so. so. Please, one there, and then any more hands? Time for two or three more, perhaps. So raise, raise the hands now if you fancy a shot. Ah, well done. That's it. Right, we'll take that one there, and then there's one, two or three rows back. You say you're um, leaving Ataturk out of the film. Could you have left him out of the novel? I, I, could, have, I could have left Ataturk out of the novel, but there was a good reason for putting him in. I realised that most people reading Birds Without Wings wouldn't necessarily know much about the background and the history. And I had to think of a way of letting readers know about the background, about the history, so that it all made some sort of sense. Um, and I realised that Ataturk was actually everywhere where anything important happened. So by putting him in the story, a sort of potted biography as if it was written by a hack journalist, by putting him in, I would give the, the readers uh, all the historical background they needed. And I also thought, well, if people don't like those sections, they can just not read them. I mean, I know, I know what readers are like. <laughs> they, they often have poor concentration. They often skip. And I thought, well, if people don't like those bits, they, just, they can just not read them. But I, I kind of, um, uh, what's the word? sabotage that a little bit because at the end of every Ataturk cha uh, chapter I brought the story back to something that was happening in the uh, little town. Uh. That was my revenge on the people who were too lazy to read about Ataturk. <laughs> 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 and you start the next se section by saying, for those of you who missed the previous <laughs> bit, yeah. There was a question, hand raised there please, yes, mm -hmm. yes thanks. Hello, I'm probably just about to reveal my ignorance but I've always been a great admirer of your name. Oh. Um, I find it very romantic and musical and memorable. <laughs> and I've been You're on a promise here, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> I've been very intrigued by it, and I wondered 
is it fictional or is it real? Well, can I have your email number? <laughs> <laughs> Later. Yeah. I can't see you very well, but you've got a lovely voice. Even better. Um, it's, um, it's, it's half of my real name. Um, I, I had an ancestor called Jean-Antoine de Bernier, who, who became a Huguenot, a Protestant, at exactly the, the most stupid time. <laughs> and uh, when Louis XIV was basically persecuting them and, and um, harassing them in order to get, to get their money off them. You know how greedy Louis XIV was. He, he, he effectively destroyed the French commercial classes just because he wanted their money. And um, my family were involved in this persecution. Have you heard of the Dragonade? Well, the French, French dragoons were notoriously badly behaved troops. They were brutes. And Louis XIV put out a decree, a, a decree that Huguenot families had to billet dragoons in their houses and put up with whatever the, the dragoons got up to. Obviously, it was, that, it was an outrage. So Jean-Antoine, he renounced all his lands and possessions and titles and things, and he, he handed them over to his family, who'd remained Catholic. And he, he went to Northern Ireland, where he married a local woman from the Cromelin family, and they started an, an industry, a linen industry in Lisbon. They, got really, they did really very well. A number of Jean-Antoine's descendants devoted their time to fighting the French, um, one of them was even captured by Napoleon. General Henri de Bernier was, was actually ours. Anyway. Um, so he was trying to escape from religious problems and he went to Northern Ireland. He wasn't a very lucky guy, was he? You know, you know, well, <laughs> it, it occurred to me that as, 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 as a newly minted Protestant, he might have thought it fun to go and oppress ah, some Catholics. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Um, no, so anyway, the, the, anyway, further down the line, um, we ran out of male heirs and Charlotte de Bernier married a, a clergyman called Newton Smart. And in those days, it was quite common for the husband to take the wife's name, if the wife's name was posher. <laughs> so they became de Bernier Smart. And wh when, I, when I started writing, it occurred, I, I was using Mr. Smart as a t my teaching name. I was a teacher in a London comprehensive. And I thought, well, I'll use, the, I'll use the de Bernier bit for writing. And with any luck, it'll make it easy to get published in France. It's a so tremendous story. I'm, I'm really it? de Bernier smart. Oh, great, great story. <laughs> Thanks for asking we're me that still, We're still in touch with our French relatives. You know. Are they still Huguenots now? No, they're all Catholics. Oh. <laughs> great stuff. Yeah. Time for one more, perhaps, if, if there's one more eager, eager question. Oh, yes, yes, please. So if you hang on a second till our colleague sk skips around. The red dog, which I dearly loved, is it a real dog? The Red Dog. Um, so we've hardly talked about Parsons' daughter today, have we? It's a shame. Um, only 16 million quid or something. Um, and available next door very shortly. The Red Dog um, is a real dog. For, for those of you who don't know, this is, this is a story um, which I wrote really for 12-year-olds, but it seems to have been sold to more or less anyone. Um, I had to do the first ever literary... Uh, event in a mining town called Caratha in Western Australia. And how much time have we got? Assuming it. Um, fine. It was quite funny. Um, they'd never had one before. My reading was combined with um, a meeting of the local. Um, oh God, what do you call them? The Seroptimists. And the, the, who. who the, the, how do you know that? <laughs> 
yes. Yes, you, you know they have the, the, these circles of magic circles of businessmen and things. The, the, the women had a thing called the Soroptimists, and they, they were known locally as the Soroptikows. But so they, we, we, we read the minutes of the Soroptikows, and then, and then I did a reading, and, and the hotel manager lent me his ute. She said, a, a damn great four-wheel drive truck thing. Um, he lent it to me the next day, and I drove around, and I, I found at the side of the road near Dampier a monument to a dog. It was a bronze monument of a, of a, of a cattle dog. And I, I was so interested in this that when I got back to the hotel, I started asking questions. And they said, well, this was a dog who used to hitch lifts with people. He, he never had an owner, really, but he, 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 he felt as though everyone belonged to him. And he, he, a, lo a lot of interesting things happened to the dog. And my agent, although she now denies this, used to tell me that I really must have a go at a children's book. And I thought, well, this is my ideal chance. So I went back with a um, laptop a couple of months later, hired another ute, and drove around collecting the stories. And uh, it, I had the most wonderful time. It's the most fun I've ever had writing a book. It only took a couple of weeks. And, um, and the, the, the stories are elaborations of, you know, in other words, fictionalized elaborations of the stories that I was told about this amazing dog. I reckon you could write a children's book about a cat called Portos. Uh, <laughs> that, that sounds like a good one to me. Yeah. I have to draw it to, to a close. I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed that thoroughly. It was an absolutely splendid. Oh, now, um, Louis. Okay. If you give us. You give, us a, give us a couple of seconds. Louis is going to be signing books in the book signing tent next door, signing copies of Partisan's Daughter and all that sort of thing. So give us a couple of seconds to pop out and then join us next door in the signing tent. But meanwhile, will you join me in thanking Louis de Bernier for a tremendous Thank you.